Hey there, welcome back to Honor of Kings here on Kingdom in Context. Um, I'm Sean Griffin here, and my co-host with me is... As always, Ken Heidebrecht. Sean, how are you doing? Shabbat Shalom, guys. If it's still Shabbat for you, wherever you're at watching this right now, it's just over for me. Yeah, it's the sun's going down for me right now, so it's been a good Shabbat. And um, man, I, I'm excited to have you back. We, were, we took a break last week because we had some, you know, the uh, Sukkot festivals going on. Many people were out of town doing things. Uh, you yourself were out of town. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was uh, back in my home province. We were we were Sukkoting up up in the northern part of that province, and uh, it was a good time. There's no internet connection where we were at, which is good. It was hard because that was probably the first time in a long time I haven't had an internet connection where I'm constantly wanting to look and check my my devices. So it was good in that sense. It was it was almost like a fast away from my technology, but I wasn't able to join you guys unfortunately. But we're back. Cool. So wait, you you live in Nova Scotia normally, but what other province did you go to? I went to Ontario, where where I'm I'm actually from. I was born and raised in southern Ontario. So there was okay. a congregation out that way that was getting together, and we went, we just wanted to check out their their congregation because they had a little bit more youthful presence there. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, that you know. Okay. Yeah, I won't say anything about that. But <laughs> there's a. <laughs> I understand what you mean. Sometimes there's a. Uh, it's different, different conversation talking with different age groups. So you just yeah. definitely have to, you have to figure out quickly how to adjust, you know, in a big group setting, but that's great, man. I'm glad you're back. Glad you had a good time. And um, I'm excited to get to going with this show here because we've got uh, some of the most exciting chapters we're actually digging into. I mean, here's the thing about the book of Enoch. That's what we've been researching. If anyone's watching this uh, episode for the first time and it's the first time you seek honor of Kings um, on kingdom and context, this whole concept here of this channel is that we're looking at these apocryphal books, these books that have been taken out of, the Bible about around 140 ish years ago. And we're actually looking at the content in those books and we're trying to match them up with the traditional canon of 66 books that we've had for the last hundred years and see why did they take them out? What's in them? What are they saying? You know, and uh, so far we found a lot of, a lot of strong things, strong evidence in the book of Enoch that would say that more than likely it should not have been taken out of the canon. What would you say, Ken? John, I would have to concur with your your statement there because uh, yeah, the more we move forward in this book, the more I start to see. I mean, literally, as we're going to come across chapters in this episode, Yeshua all throughout it, just yeah. common themes that are in the scriptures, the day of the Lord, and yeah, it's it, to me, I it, I scratch my head continually as to why this book was removed. Um, so yeah, you know if. If Jesus, the central core theme of his message in the Gospels was talking about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, for many of you, um, that term sometimes gets confusing, but it's, the word gospel just simply means good news. And so Jesus was running around talking about the good news of the kingdom of God perpetually. That's that's what he's, he said in Luke 9. That's why I, I was sent was to talk about the good news of the kingdom of God. All the prophets before him talked about the good news of the kingdom of God as well. In great detail, Enoch is exactly one of those prophets and he talked about the gospel of the kingdom of god in great detail and so far in the book of enoch you know the first what 20 chapters we got to see the bad guys right we got That's to right, see yeah. the enemy we got to see rebellious angels trying to interfere with mankind then we got to see how the father responded i think it was two three episodes ago we actually did a um, a summary for the first 10 minutes of the show where we summarized the previous eight or nine episodes so people could kind of catch up. So if you haven't seen that episode, go back a couple episodes. Um, and that I think it was on our Enoch Reveals the Tree of Life episode, which was, I think, two or three episodes ago. So, um, 
yeah, go catch that one. You can get kind of caught up on the first several episodes because essentially we're building in the book of Enoch. You know, we got to see the bad guys and how God responds to them and then how then Enoch is shown all these amazing things above the firmament and the realm where God is and his house and his land and, you know, all the, the mountains that we get to see last. I think last week we looked at what? Um, the ends of the earth, right? Yeah, the week before, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty wild. Week before that, we looked at the actual throne of the Messiah that's gonna that we'll, we'll all see in the millennial reign. Um, this week, we actually get to talk about the return of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah. Enoch, yes, even Enoch, way back in the day before the flood, he, being a prophet of God, was shown these same exact things that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Zephaniah, you know, all these other guys, all these other prophets were shown this exact stuff. Yeah, that's right, Sean. And Jude 1.14 says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. And he goes on to execute judgment upon all and to convince all the ungodly. So Jude is quoting verbatim from Enoch. And Enoch is very day of the Lord heavy, very Yeshua returning on the day of the Lord heavy. And, you know, in order for him to be prophesying, he needs to be a prophet and prophets write things down. Yeah, I think in the modern vernacular on the street, they would say Enoch goes hard. So oh, yeah. He's, he's definitely, he doesn't pull any punches. He goes right for the end of the story. Um, and that's what many of the prophets did. And Enoch was e- exactly in that example. So without further ado, I say we jump right into it. We're going to start with in, uh, Enoch 37. Oh, real quick. Hey, um, Ken, didn't you just release a CD last week? Like a music CD, right? I did. I did actually, Sean. Thanks for mentioning that. Um it took me a couple months to to fully record and produce, but I just put it out on the on the second of this month, and um, under my my band name, it's myself. But I call myself Mountains into the Sea, and the name of the EP is called New Cloth. And I actually have a um, a bit of a teaser here, guys, for you. You can you can pick it up at Bandcamp, whatever price you want to do, or you just want to play it for yourself without paying. That's fine. I just want to get the message out because. Um, yeah, I'm all about writing lyrics and recording music that praises Yahweh with with using contextualized um, wording while doing so. And so, yeah, it's great music, guys. If you haven't if you haven't heard it before, um, I'm not exactly sure how the sound is coming through right now with me talking, but it's great music, uh, great mini LP that you guys should check out. I mean, I've been a fan of his music for a few years, but uh, this one is is uh, special. It's good, so. If you haven't seen it yet, go go grab it. It's called New Cloth, and it's by our very own Ken Heidbright. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, me too. So, Thank you. Cool, brother. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, Enoch 37 is where we're going to start. We'll probably do 38 and 39 this week. Um, and this one, we're just going to, I mean, we just get to see the Messiah return and how it's spoken about you know by enoch and i try to put myself in the mindset of if i were you know in the days of of before the flood right so this because here we are thousands of years removed from the lifespan of enoch i'm thinking to myself what was how did the people respond in his day as far as to understand you know the 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 purposes of wanting to share this message of wanting to say to the people around you oh hey by the way this is the son of man who was with the father since before creation began. And he's going to actually return. He's going to come down. He's going to deal with all these things. And in fact, some of the judgment we see um, is actually some of the stuff that was already prefaced, if I'm not mistaken, like back in chapter, uh, what, 10? Yeah. 
with yeah, chapter ten, right, of Enoch. So right. um, I just think that it's that we used to see some of the fulfillment of some of the judgments that go on, and I think it's fascinating. So um, I'm excited to get to it. Yeah, me too, man. We'll okay, so uh, let's look at. Um, let me see here. The first chapter here in 30, 37, and I'm going to throw up a, I'm going to throw this slide up on the screen real quick. So folks, can, if you can follow along, um, what Ken and I do is we actually read out of um, the R.H. Charles version. I know many people have the Book of Enoch in their Sefer Bible, and that's fine. Unfortunately, though, because of publishing restraints, if you put out the same piece of literary work in a new publishment, you have to change some things according to plagiarism laws. So the Sefer is the same words. They're just organized like they're, the verses are changed a little bit. It's like so some of the information instead of being in verse two, it may be in verse one. So just uh, if you're trying to follow along in the Sefer Bible, just be mindful of that. OK, yeah, even God's word isn't impervious to copyright issues. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Publishing industry head does have the final say, unfortunately, in that particular regard. Um, so. Enoch 37, guys, uh, this first passage right here, just in verse one, it says the second vision, which he saw the vision of wisdom, which Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalalalalalalal. Sorry, guys, I, I can't stop when I get on a roll. <laughs> you missed an L there at the end. Yeah, so it's, uh, just rolls off the tongue. Um, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth and the son of Adam. He saw, and this is the beginning of the words of wisdom, which I lifted up my voice to speak and to say to those which dwell on the earth here ye men of old time and see ye that come after the words of the holy one which i will speak before the lord of spirits if it were if it were better to declare to the men of old time but even from those that come after we will not withhold the beginning of wisdom so in a sense it's almost like he's saying i'm speaking to both you know people in his day and people to come after him read it later which would be us guys which would be how, us. how kind of him sean to not withhold the wisdom for us yes. after. he's not withholding he's he's gonna lay it all out um so verse four, it says, till the present day, such wisdom has never been given by the Lord of spirits as I have received according to my insight, according to the good pleasure of the Lord of spirits, by whom the lot of eternal life has been given to me. Now three parables were imparted to me and I lifted up my voice and recounted them to those that dwell on the earth. So 37 is kind of like just an introductory, isn't it, Ken? It is. It is. Yeah. And it's yeah. quite the assertion, eh? Till that right, present that, day, no one has given been given the type of insight as he has. And he, yeah, it makes me think about Jos Josephus's claim about Adam and his descendants knowing how to read the stars. Um, and, you know, we always hear they're supposedly the Gospels and the stars. That's right. So um, I I just wonder if, if I don't know, I just, you know, Enoch was alive during, during the days apparently when Adam was still alive. So it makes me wonder if that's what Josephus was referencing, because that means you'd have all those guys that just were mentioned in, in that first verse, right? You know, we got Enos and Canaan and Mahalalel and Jared and all those guys. That I guess they would have still been alive because Jared himself even lived to 929 years. Was that right? And Enoch, uh, Adam lived 930 years. Um, so yeah. anyway, I mean, there, uh, there's if, if I did the math one time and I put it all down on like a time chart, and I'm pretty sure it was um, Methuselah was still alive. Methuselah was just born when Adam was dying. And can you imagine, brother? Gosh, can you imagine being at that family gathering and just like listening to the old timers talk? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, you got like Jared and Seth and Enos and, and Adam just chilling, you know, yeah, cutting open some lamb, just having a good time, doing their thing. You know, um, I just, gosh, I can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah, well, that's why I think 
the millennial reign with all these famous men of renown um, is going to be amazing because we're going to hopefully cut open some lamb and, and feast and ask questions and and all that stuff as a, as a resurrected family of spiritual beings, right? Yeah, absolutely. We'll get to see all those guys, which is why Hebrews 11 says they are not made perfect until we are made perfect with them. Yeah. Verses 39 and 40. So that's we all we all receive that at the resurrection be an amazing reunion with people we've never met. That's right. <laughs> we're all one family and we're all birthed at the same time. It's amazing. Yeah, I've I've thought of petitioning Hallmark to come out with uh, my own series of first resurrection cards, you know. <laughs> Each and it's a very niche market. Warmth. Yeah, it's a very niche market. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's actually the the understanding of the first resurrection is actually kind of a niche idea even within most believers, which breaks my heart. Um, yeah. And that's kind of why we talk about it a lot. And we show people how it's layered throughout the entirety of the book everywhere, because it's something I think people really should understand to really grasp the hope that's been offered to us by the Messiah. So, yeah, he I mean, our Messiah definitely had some choice words with Nicodemus about not understanding what, exactly what you're talking about. And this was a guy who was supposed to be teaching Israel what Yeshua already knew, you know, so. Yeah, and you yeah. guess what? Nicodemus actually, he and Joseph Arimathea buried, or they embalmed and wrapped and, and entombed Jesus after they pulled him off the cross. Can you imagine the thoughts going through their head? Yeah, it's... <laughs> right? Supposedly guys that knew the law, that studied the law, and and here they, you know, and they watch Jesus talk about how, um, you know, he's the Messiah. So if they knew any of this stuff, then to me, it's like they knew something had to happen. Yeah. Something, something couldn't, that wasn't the end of the story is all I'm getting at. And I wonder if they realized that. Yeah. Know, I like to the tomb and burying him. And yeah, I like how the, uh, the late great Chuck Missler, um, put it when it came to Joseph Arimathea, when he was petitioning Pontius Pilate for the body of, of Yeshua. And, you know, he's like, just the way he, he said it, he's like, oh, like, okay, yeah, if you want, you can have the body. And, 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 Joseph Arimathea was like, "Oi, vey, it's only for three days. Like, I'm only, I only need it for three days in this tomb, really." So, I liked how he put it because, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully, I don't know. Maybe Joseph Arimathea didn't understand that Yeshua was going to be resurrecting, and, and you know, three days after he took him off the cross. But, hey, I mean, if he did, I don't know, man. That's how amazing would that be? Knowing you're taking the body of our Messiah off the cross, you're putting it in your putting him in your own tomb, and you're knowing it's only for a couple of days that's what an honor that would be if you contextually understood what was going on but yeah i mean that's unfortunately nicodemus didn't show signs of that now joseph arimathea did kind of show signs um yeah. at least on a technical level he seemed to exhibit i think it was in john chapter 11 he exhibits amongst his fellow pharisees um some of the details of the law that they were supposed to be living by yeah. you know the law of god and so um i he, I he was looking prophets as well that's right. And he was looking for the kingdom of God, right? And specifically right. says he was looking for that. So do you think, in your opinion, he understood the literal kingdom of God and was waiting for that that to, to come about? You know, I, I, if he did, I mean, that's, to me, it's like, um, it's almost like the patriarchs of the past. I wonder at what point did they not realize what all this stuff meant? Just because, I mean, how long does it take me um in my life to really get to the place where I realized I didn't have a clue what, what the kingdom of God was and what their actual hope of his return was and what that all meant. You know, yeah. I still thought somehow Jesus was coming through outer space at one point. 
to bring some huge rock of a square city through outer space. <laughs> like I had no clue. I, or I thought maybe it's just another dimension and this big veil is going to be ripped open between, you know, the quote unquote, you know, relativity of, of time and space fabric. And I was going to suddenly see the kingdom of God, you know, and I'm like, I had no clue how to actually process what the prophets were actually talking about. Yeah. And I wonder at what point in history, the average man who was a believer in, in God and his Messiah lost that ability, lost that understanding as a whole, as a community. And I, I, it's my passion to bring it back to people because, and that's what we see in the book of Enoch, because it, it makes sense of the entire book and it'll, it'll invigorate your heart. Like you've never imagined to understand every, that G, what Jesus was constantly preaching about. Yeah. Amen, man. I, I agree. We know for sure. Abraham was looking for a, a city whose, whose maker and architect was God, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so he understood it for sure. Yeah. You know, um, so anyway, Okay, so there's some, some things here in, in 37 I just want to point out real quick, um, and that was the genealogy. So one of the things that we do on the Honor of Kings when we're reading these passages from these apocryphal books is we just want to look at how, much, how well does this line up with the actual canon of 66 that we have in our modern-day Bibles. And so one of the things that does line up really well that I, just, I would love to point out is that, um, let me screen share for folks, is uh, right here where it says, you know, we talked about the genealogy of... These of Jared, Mahalalel, Canaan, Enos, Seth, and Adam. Well, they're actually presented in the proper order of Genesis 5. Okay, so this is the genealogy lines up because these are the in Genesis 5, Adam's born first, and then Cain and Abel are out of the picture. And so then it records in Genesis 5, Seth, Enos, Canaan, and Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, and Noah. So that does line up with the first couple of verses of Enoch 37. And that's yeah, it. absolutely. And it, it lines up with what Jude says too about Enoch being the seventh from Adam, and that would be the seventh w w with the genealogy you just pulled up. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one second, let me get back to. So basically, what I did want to talk about though was Enoch himself. I think this was at the end of. Um, uh, do you guys at the end of thirty-seven verse, uh, verse four it says till the present day such wisdom had never been given by the Lord of Spirits. As I have received, according to my insight, according to the good pleasure of the Lord of Spirits, by whom the lot of eternal life has been given to me. Well, he just claimed that he was given a lot of eternal life. But if we look in Jubilees chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, just so people are not confused, what he's, he's not talking about eternal life in this present life. We all have to face the first death. We're saved and we're given eternal life to escape the second death, as Yeshua taught us and as Deuteronomy teaches us and as all the all the prophets talk about like that's the point of the Messiah that he redeems our soul from Sheol and so here in Jubilee seven we actually have an admission by Jubilees that Enoch did die and I hate to burst the bubble for people but this is this is important for you guys to understand so your your theology doesn't get wonky when you read Hebrews chapter uh, chapter eleven verse five where it talks about Enoch and God took him for it was not so he did not see death so. He did eventually die because all men have to die. That's the, that's the only way they're going to get raised by the Messiah. So that's why the Messiah is called the first fruits of the first resurrection. So no one can supersede the Messiah being raised to eternal life from mankind first. Enoch did not, did not supersede the Messiah. Okay. So this is what we want to make clear because there's a lot of bad teaching out there that claims from, I think it's the third book of Enoch that he became immortal and he now reigns in heaven and, like and they call it Metatron and some other things like that. And it becomes actually Gnostic paganism. 
And so this is what we want to make sure people understand. Jubilee 7, verse 38, 39 says, For thus did Enoch, the father of your father, command Methuselah his son, and Methuselah his son Lamech. And Lamech commanded me all the things which his fathers commanded him. And I also will give you commandment, my sons, as Enoch commanded his son and in the first Jubilees, while still living. The seventh in his generation, he commanded and testified to his son and to his son's sons until the day of his death. So, yeah, that that definitely scrubs the idea of him being, well, this might be a different topic about the witnesses, but um, him being translated into heaven and just being there as, you know, having not to face death. Right. So. Right. And here's the thing that when people read the book of Jubilees and they'll see in chapter four that it says Enoch was conducted into the Garden of Eden where he would write down the deeds of mankind until the judgment, the consummation of the judgment or whatever. To understand, and this is where it's actually, you know, the placement of the creation model is where this matters. Okay, so to understand everything we've talked about in the previous episodes about Enoch describing the creation model and how Genesis 1 describes the creation model and Genesis 2 introduces the Garden of Eden where it talks about how it was a separate land than the land actually Adam was made from and that he was, after Adam was made, was put into the Garden of Eden. Okay, but then when they transgressed, they were taken out of it. So this was a thing. This was a place, a territory that was that was enclosed that's, that was literally on the ground. And in my opinion, from Isaiah 49, it was on the ground until the flood. So this whole realm of life that's happening before the flood, they're doing it around the Garden of Eden still being in their sight from everything I've researched and can, and can make sense of in these books. Which yeah. means... And that's why, if you understand, again, the, the firmament model, the model of creation that God describes in his book, plus the concept of the Garden of Eden being a separate holy Kodesh place that was, as Jubilees talks about, was more holy than any other land on the earth, which is why when they transgressed and they they were no longer, you know, they transgressed the commandment, they were, they were kicked out of, they were scattered from that land, okay, uh, Adam and Eve were, and that's why it was still there and being guarded so nobody could get to the tree of life and get into it to get into the tree of life. So this was a place being guarded by angels or an angel, uh, maybe one, maybe more. I'm not sure. But um, what's interesting, though, is that's why when we see in, in the, the end of Revelation and when the new Jerusalem is returning and it's coming down, it's described as a huge city that's coming down. <laughs> this is what we've already seen in previous chapters in Enoch, where he talks about the throne of God being in a landmass. And it, it, it was the garden that Enoch's you know, uh, forefathers, Adam and Eve, were actually in and took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was that, chapter 24 or 20, 27? I'm trying to remember what chapter um, it was. Yeah, I don't remember which exact chapter it was. But just to go along with what you're saying, I mean, the couple of times that paradise, the word paradise is mentioned in the scriptures. Um, in the Greek, it's paradisus. And that simply means an enclosed garden. Yeah. So... You know, a lot and of people why, think that the garden was just literally an, only in a garden, and and but it, it was, you know, it was a structure. It was a little structure. Exactly yeah. as Revelation twenty one describes it, and verse one and two calls it the paradise of God. That's right. Which all the psalms, like uh, the psalmists Isaiah, Ezekiel, call it the house of God, and the mountain Zion. Zechariah calls it Mount Zion. Um, so, which is, and they also call it the holy city, the city of truth, the city of Jerusalem, the city where the Lord is. Which is why, like you already mentioned in Hebrews 11, Abraham would be looking for a city to come from God, from heaven, and not one that's on the... He's not looking for trees and land and rivers and streams on the ground. So he just knew that the geographical territory was promised to him as the promised land, 
but yet he knew there were some sequences of events that had to take place for the actual land of what Enoch is describing all throughout his book to actually come down, which is what we see fulfilled in Revelation. So I just want to point that out, guys. Um, yes, Jubilees chapter four, and we're going to actually, you know, we already did a couple episodes on Jubilees on a different network back in the day, but in the future, we'll probably review Jubilees again because it's super meaty. And um, I mean, it's it'll it'll beef up your muscles on scriptures. And he actually talks in chapter four about Enoch going into the Garden of Eden for a moment. That's why he was pulled away from mankind so that he could write down the deeds of man. That's why he's called a scribe, Ken. <laughs> That's right. He yeah. was called the scribe, and he did that until the day of, of judgment, which, you know, from everything we've gleaned, was the day of the flood judgment, not the end of the age judgment. So, um, well, I guess, you know, and it, it was the end of his age, wasn't it? Yeah, it would have been. According to yeah. you, the flood was the end of its own age, uh, started a new age at that point. I think where a lot of people get confused, Sean, um, is just where Enoch did not see death, for he was removed. The not seeing death. Um, because we know in Jubilees, the passage that you just read, he did see death. He died. So right. the death that he wasn't seeing was the corruption on the earth during the time, right? He was removed from the utter chaos and blood being spilled, and right. he was removed away from that. You agree with yes. that? That's, that's uh, the context of everything we're reading and putting together. That would be my assessment of that, of how that reads and what that's referring to. Yeah. Cool, yeah. man. Yeah. Because uh, here's the thing. I know a lot of people are really, really strong on this because, you know, for years they've been speculating, speculating about Enoch and people really get upset when you say Enoch is dead because, you know, there's entire books written about it, that hundreds of videos on YouTube about people speculating. Is Enoch one of the two witnesses? Where is he? Is he still alive? But guys, it's, I mean, the, the whole point of the resurrection was that Yeshua had to be the first so he could be the elder and be qualified as the high priest so that he can mediate to God for us. So therefore he could actually vouch for us and raise us out of Sheol. So no other person could supersede his eldership in that regard. He had to have that authority of position, which is why he's called in Colossians 1, not just the firstborn of all creation, as we read in Enoch 47 and a few episodes later, but he's also called the firstborn of among the dead and firstborn of the church. So he is first in all things, and Enoch is not, okay? Yeah. Sean, since we're in the business of dismantling preconceived ideas and, and um, belief systems, since we're already doing the Enoch thing, um, which book is it? I think it's Ecclesiasticus, which talks about Elijah also dying. Because a lot of people want to speculate because Elijah was taken up by chariots up to heaven. They think that he was removed and possibly one of the witnesses too. But another actually biblical book that Sean and I highly um you know, refer to and and definitely I, I advocate for it. Um, it says straight out that Elijah died. So that's another thing that I mean, Elijah didn't didn't receive eternal life or or was impervious to not dying in the flesh. So yeah, yeah, that's you're exactly right, brother. Yeah, I, I mean we we've got so little time. Do I mean I, I know we you and I don't have the time to do this twice a week, but it's like. We've got so little time with this show doing it once a week. There's so many books like Ecclesiasticus that we want to get to, yeah. you know, and we're sitting there going like, how do we get to them? You know, cause we, uh, so thanks for being patient with us guys. Uh, we, we hope, you know, if, if Lord allows and our schedules allow and everything, we hope to be able to do this for five, six seasons so that we can cover all these apocryphal books in depth and great detail so that you can be confident and know which ones line up with scripture. Um, 
because there's so many of them out there that answer so many questions for us. That's right. In fact, you know, my wife and I were studying um, today on Shabbat and we were we were looking over, um, you know, the book of Jubilees a little bit. And, you know, it's just funny that the actual concept of how much detail the book of Jubilees gives that Genesis doesn't. It, I mean, if we believe Jubilees is legit and we believe the very first uh, chapter of Jubilees, it seems to be that 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 this was a book given to Moses on Mount Sinai, you know, along with all the other instructions that we see written down for Leviticus and Exodus and different things like that. You know, it just, it, we I almost want to start to like question, like, where does this term come from that says the first five books of Moses? Because I believe that Moses was definitely the leader of Israel while those books were being authored and penned. But, you know, we know that scribes were priests in general that were responsible for writing down stuff. So, did Moses literally write every single word of the Torah himself, or did he author its inscription? Does that make any sense? You know, oh, yes. was he the guy that oversaw the work of Genesis being actually written down? Um, because it just makes me wonder, man, if Jubilees was intentionally left out by Judaism, by the Pharisaical Judaism, because it explains so much. Yeah. And it, it, it actually prophesies about people in our day today coming back to the Father from all over the world and keeping his commandments. And, you know, we know that that Judaism, which was in charge of the quote unquote books of Moses for a long time, they were not teaching the commandments. They were teaching their traditions over commandments and just like they, most of them still do today. And so that's where it makes me wonder if there's if this whole concept of trying to to hide some of the details from us so that we can be led into other teachings for different nefarious reasons has been going on a lot longer than we've ever suspected. Yeah. I, I, that's kind of where I'm leaning at right now. I think it's complete um, disgrace to call the book of Jubilees, the lesser Genesis, because as you just said, like it expands a lot on um, various aspects of the book of Genesis where you get one sentence here, one sentence there, and that's it. Right. And the reader's supposed to like derive you know, in their own mind, a conclusion, which is missing a whole lot of information. But when you refer to Jubilees, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, contextually, this makes sense. And there's a ton of stuff being added here, a ton of stuff um, being expounded upon that would definitely aid in my understanding of where there was gaps in the Genesis account, right? So I agree, man. I, I'm, I'm starting to see the more and more I read these extra biblical books that men removed and that were in canons and are still in canons, the more I think it, it, these are the intentions behind it aren't, aren't exactly for our benefit. So, yeah, absolutely. Brother. Um, in fact, uh, guys in the chat, I'm just uh, addressing a couple of things. So, um, I think that, uh, there's some good conversation happening over there and I'm just trying to keep people caught up over here, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right, man. I mean, it's, this is again. This is why we're doing the show. We're just trying to dig in as much as we can. Yeah. It, Sean, it, like, it in my opinion, it shows a more consistent character of the Father because the commandments were given according to the Jubilees uh, far before Moses. You know, the Mosaic, um, the Mosaic Law, they call it, right? But we know that, as we've mentioned in other episodes, that uh, Abraham was someone who obeyed Yahweh's statutes, commandments, and ordinances. And, you know, what, what, 
what were those, right? If not the law that was given to Moses, but Jubilees tells us straight up that he had all the commandments that were eternally written down on the tablets in heaven that the very angels um, also adhere to. So yeah, it just makes things more consistent. It's more clear and you have to get rid of dispensationalism. Yeah. For sure. If you're going to put some sort of a, a faith in, in the book of Jubilees and its validity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, dispensationalism blinds us in so many areas of the book. It's it's sad. In fact, the the actual outcome after generations of dispensational modern teachings in the church leads many churches to just preach from the books of Paul only. Yeah, it's 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 wild, brother. And it allows a huge open door for um, preterism or what not full on preterism, but partial preterism. Yeah. And to think that even revelation is already fulfilled and and not you know applicable. But and I just um, dispensation doctrine is is it's a cancer, yeah, absolute doctrine of demons in my opinion. Like it's, yep. I know it sounds harsh, guys, but that's the more you research it and the more you actually read the Bible as a whole and you see how it all fits together so perfectly and they're all talking about the same things continually. There, anyone that would claim dispensation of grace, of of God's interaction among mankind and how His law would be done away with and all this, I mean. You're, you're, I, I lovingly would say I would want to re-encourage you to read the book, continue to read the book, continue to read the book, because um, that, that just shows me that as I experienced my own life, the way I fell for dispensationalism was because I did not have an understanding of the books before Matthew. So therefore, I was easily led into that kind of thinking and that kind of hermeneutic. So yeah. that's where, yeah, we, we totally disagree with dispensationalism on this, uh, on this show and on this channel. Um, all right, man. So move along here. Yeah. Do you want to pick up? uh, Did you have any other thoughts on 37? No, I think we covered. We're pretty good there. All right. I'll screen share mine. We're going to go to chapter 38 here, guys. So it says the first parable. And uh, he was just given three parables. So this is the first. When the congregation of the righteous shall appear and sinners shall be judged for their sins and shall be driven from the face of the earth. And when the righteous one shall appear before the eyes of the righteous, whose elect works hang upon the Lord of spirits and light shall appear to the righteous and the elect who dwell on the earth where then will be the dwelling of the sinners and where the resting place of those who have denied the Lord of the spirits and it had been good for them if they had not been born when the secrets of the righteous shall be revealed and sinners judged and the godless driven from the presence of the righteous and elect from that time those that possess the earth shall no longer be powerful and exalted and they shall not be able to behold the face of the holy for the Lord of spirits has caused his light to appear on the face of the holy, righteous, and elect. Then shall the kings and the mighty perish and be given into the hands of the righteous and holy. And thenceforward, none shall seek for themselves mercy from the Lord of spirits, for the life is at an end. All right. Yep. So in 38, um, there's a lot here. And I made I made a couple of notes. I'm not sure if you want to discuss some of your, your notes first or... Yeah, I um, I'm not screen sharing anymore, am I, Sean? Um, I don't think you are. Oh, there you are. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, just one thing that stood out to me. I mean, there's a few things, but um, early on at the, at the beginning of the chapter, um, chapter two, right at the end, there it says, um, it had been good for them if they had not been born. Them being the sinners, um, on on that day, those who are opposing Yeshua and and his, you know his kingdom it just sounds very reminiscent of matthew 26 24 
and Mark 14, 21, where he's talking about the one who's going to essentially um, betray the son of man. It'd be better for him to not be born. Is this, it sounds very reminiscent of, of a Yeshua like passage, you know, of a way of, of describing something that's terrible for those who are sinning, for those who are going to incur the wrath of, of our heavenly father and his, anointed one his righteous one in verse two as he calls him that's the one of the first mentions of a messianic title here the righteous one um it's better for them to have not been born now sean why do you think that is because the way i i think of that phrase i think well what was i like before i was born i don't know right i don't i don't have any memory of what it was like because i wasn't in existence at the time so why would it be better for them if we know that they're going to be annihilated by the lake of fire ultimately right the second death why is it better for them because i believe that leading up to that point they're seeing oh my gosh this is what i squandered i was i would have had the opportunity to live eternally with the one who created me but now i'm ultimately going to have the lights turned off on my life and i'm no more so it's better for you to not be born so that you didn't have to experience the fact that you were rebellious to your creator and he's he's saying okay you don't want to be with me you didn't want to be in covenant with me and trust in my agent of salvation then good night right and we actually see that disposition um from a couple of different places right um we actually see it is it in uh man i think it's in uh second ezra where it talks about those who are be raised and changed to immortal immortality the rest of them who see them see this happening are put into more just sorrow and despair yeah they pine away all the more yeah they pine away emotionally all the more we also see this in uh, enoch chapter um 62 and 63 where the kings and the mighty and the sinners of the earth are brought before yeshua that those who just tried to fight to battle him at his coming um uh, not the people he spares in mercy who are the survivors outside the new jerusalem after the day of the lord but just those who actually try to fight him at his coming, they're brought before him. And in, I think it's Enoch 63, they're pleading for mercy, but they're not granted mercy. And they realize, it says that they they confess and repent and acknowledge. Well, they don't repent. That actual definition of that word means to actually start doing the commandments of God. There's no more time for them to repent. Like they're literally brought before, you know, the feet of the Messiah. And they're actually, they're vo vocalizing. They're with their words only. They're saying, oh, we realize now you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords and you are uh, true and you're righteous and that you're good and that you're powerful and please don't kill us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even though we just tried to kill you, <laughs> um, which is crazy. We just assembled, we just fooled the whole world into trying to fight you with all the armies of the earth that we could. Uh, yeah. But please, please forgive us, you know? And that's where like, it's almost like they're betting on his mercifulness to the, to the worst degree, you know, with the most arrogance possible thinking that I can kill his people, persecute his people, destroy the earth itself, as Revelation 11 talks about, that I can actually try to kill him when he returns. Oh, but he's going to forgive me and it'll be okay. Yeah. Like Sean, what's sorry, up, bro? Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm good. What's up, man? No, sorry. Um, I was just going to say what you're just describing there reminds me of um, the prayer of Manasseh and, and what <laughs> Second Baruch has to say about Manasseh, right? I mean, when we, I don't know if... Um, the audience is familiar, but Manasseh wrote a letter before his death, um, essentially just pleading with Yahweh, you know, repenting. He, it's it's really a sad letter when you read it. You, you feel the guy's emotions. You feel the fact that he he knew he screwed up. He did a lot of terrible, terrible things. He's the worst king of of you know Israel, you know, 
in the line of kings he was the worst and you read this letter and you're like oh my gosh like at the end of it you kind of want yahweh to forgive him right but in second baruch that letter is mentioned and it says that yahweh says he will not forgive him right which is yeah. so a deathbed confession that was not granted yeah yeah and, and I'm thinking about that with what you just said about the kings and, the, and all the unrighteous and the, and the sinners in those days. Like, they're not going to get a chance. They may want to repent and plead and, and please, like, forgive us. We didn't, like, pull it whatever they can to, like, try to get this grace card, right? Literally, a grace card, please. And well, this is actually what we just read in Enoch 38. I'm going to screen share real quick because there's some uh, Matthew. Jesus talks about this, this actual moment in Matthew, and we're going to go there real quick. And because this just shows another great way that. Enoch parallels with the, the canon of 66 we already have. So it's actually here from Enoch 38, verse 1 and 3, where it talks about uh, they shall be driven from the face of the earth. And then in verse 3, it says, The secrets of the righteous shall be revealed and the sinners judged, the godless driven from the presence of the righteous and elect. Now, in Matthew 3, 12, John the Baptist actually mentions this concept as well. And it, par it, it parallels Matthew 13. So real quick, John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather his wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I, I use that passage because of the winnowing fork, right? So this, this dividing yeah. thing, right? And this, so then here in Matthew 13, Jesus actually explains in the, in the parable of the tares, the explanation of the parable of the tares. And uh, it's verse 36 starts off. It says, then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40 continues, it says, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels, they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this idea here is that um, he's actually taking a moment to gather out, right? He's going to go. We, we know that the harvest is uh, here at the beginning of Matthew 13, 36 to 39. Um, is uh, the reaper, the angels are the reapers, okay? But the harvest is the end of the age. And it we are, you know, the field is ripe. That means it's those of the resurrection are harvested by the angels. But there's also the, every, all the kings of the earth that have been tricked, if you will, into following you know, the beast and the false prophet and, and Satan the dragon trying to make war. When Revelation 16 and chapter 19 as well, we're actually going to read about those later, trying to make war against the Messiah when he returns. So they're the ones that are being rounded up as terrors to be burned with fire, um, which is why he will, he will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. And this is what Enoch is talking about, where he's saying he's going to drive them out of the land. And so, uh, in fact, um, if we go down further here in Matthew 13, 49, where he continues to expound on this same topic, and he talks about the angels will actually separate the wicked from the righteous. This particular word used in Matthew 13, 49 is a Greek word, aphorizo. Um, I think I'm saying that right. I'm not sure, but it means to mark off by boundaries from, to set apart. So it literally means to, to, to mark off by boundaries, like to cordon off with ropes, if you will, if I could put it like that, right? You're literally distinguishing the land of the New Jerusalem that's about to set down, and you're driving out of that all the godless, 
all the centers, everybody, I mean, and I'm saying centers in a very generic term, like Enoch is using it, but anyone that is not is set apart or holy, that is not a part of the resurrected family, they have to get out of that area. They can't, they can't stay. So that's, um, you know, it's important for people to understand. That's why they're left over as, as uh, survivors of the day of the Lord. So there's two groups that are being encountered here by the angels on the day of the Lord, right? And I'm not talking about the, the those who are being resurrected and taken to the New Jerusalem to be hidden away. I'm talking about those the people that are participating in the wrath of the Lamb. And this is the first group is those who are literally trying to fight him. And they're going to be distinguished, as we see in Zechariah 14. They're literally going to be, you know, rot while they stand. It's, it, whatever kind of plague this is, whatever power this is, it's con all consuming fire. They're literally going to just be burned up, like hit with a, you know, a major blast. Yeah. But everybody else that might still be within this 1500 square mile territory that hasn't gotten out yet, they're actually going to be physically removed by the angels. Now they're going to be shown mercy. It looks like from everything in this, in the prophets, but they still don't know God. They still don't know his ways, his righteousness. They still don't know what it means to walk with God or respect him or revere him, which is why they're taught how to do that. Not just by the resurrected saints, but by, you know, the Messiah himself from Mount Zion within the new Jerusalem. That's what that's what Enoch is is looking at right here in chapter thirty eight. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because uh, yeah, well well stated, brother. Um, Yeshua is so cool in the sense that he even gives those people in those days that that are going to experience this a heads up in Matthew twenty four, right? Yeah, that's just a heads true. up, run when this happens. You start seeing these things, run, get out of there. <laughs> Yeah, he tries to tell him like when he, yeah, exactly, get out of the way, get out of here. You know, because there unfortunately there may be some collateral damage because of this massive earthquake that's taking place. Yeah. Um and pray um, it's not on a Sabbath, pray, you know. Yeah, pray your flight's not on a Sabbath, but but the concept is all the cities of the world are crumbling, so you know, and the firmament is the powers of the heavens are shaken like Matthew 24:29 talks about. Um, you know, he's really literally rolling back the firmament like a scroll so he can bring down the New Jerusalem. And the armies of the world are gathering in, you know, north of Jerusalem in the battle of, of Armageddon, in the valley of Jezreel, where Armageddon is. And everyone else who's in that area, you know, I don't I don't know where you hopefully run as fast as you can so that any of debris of any of the of the cities falling and the mountains crumbling into their, you know, just run as far as you can to get away to a safe place. Uh, unfortunately, there will be probably collateral damage, um, and they'll just have to be raised at the second, second resurrection, right? Yeah. Um, but that's, uh, but that's the idea, you know, is that um, there's just there's a lot going on in this day, and I mean, actually, we have an entire show and another channel dedicated to everything going on on this particular day. So it's yeah, that's right. Oh, something else that Enoch mentions in, in verse four. Did you see that where it says the light that appears? Yeah. Yeah, and that corresponds with Revelation twenty-two and and Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll uh, I'll just let folks see that real quick. Yeah, I'll screen share for them because that's actually right in line with everything that uh, we see in Revelation twenty-two and in Daniel twelve. So it says, uh, "And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of light of the lamp or nor light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever." And real quick, Daniel 12, verse 3 says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. Yeah. We, yeah, so this is the actual point of this verse 4 in Enoch 38, 4, where it says, For the Lord of Spirits has caused his light to appear on the face of the holy, righteous, and elect. Yeah. 
Weird. Yeah, that's that's amazing, man. Because it's, I mean, we know that Yeshua is the only one really that can dwell in the unapproachable light of our Heavenly Father right now, right? So, when we're going to be, as you've um, hilariously quoted before, we're going to be like little bright lights. That's right. In the kingdom, and and so, and that, and this is the context, right, Sean? And in, in Revelation twenty-two, where yeah. there will no longer be any night or day. Because I mean, we're in the kingdom and in the New Jerusalem during this time, and and the sun and the moon will still exist outside of it. That's right. Back in their reformatted um, heaven firmament, but um, we won't need it because it's going to just be so so bright in the kingdom because we're going to be literal light bulbs running around, flying around like the stars. So, yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, we'll be. And and to me, it just makes sense if our new nature is made of water instead of dirt it's it's almost like we're you know able to i don't know just however that works with our new creation that we're going to be at the resurrection uh and with new physics of body like we like were promised like yeshua exhibited um that it wouldn't it would make sense if we're able to somehow um be a conduit of light that much more of yeah. literal physical light you know because it's i don't know I'm, i don't get too far off into that but um <laughs> but yeah there's a lot of fun things to think about yeah. So Enoch is seeing this same stuff, man. This is a, this is the kind of stuff we see in Isaiah 60. Uh, we just read about Revelation 22, Daniel 12. He's seeing the same stuff, and um, it's just amazing because this guy was what 1,200 years before the flood. That's right. So it's just a, that's a lot. That's a lot going on. But also, I just wanted to read real quick for the for the viewer. Um, this as we just read about in Enoch 38, where it's talking about how he comes down, the righteous one appears. You know, as we have that famous passage, I think it's 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, where he will destroy the lawless one with the brightness of his coming. Um, and that's why every time Enoch is mentioning this righteous one, it's about the brightness of God, you know, because um, as we know that this day that he returns is the day of darkness and clouds. Uh, the sun and moon are ashamed or abashed, as Isaiah 30 talks about, Matthew 24 talks about. Uh, they're not giving the light like normal, and, and the clouds are super dark, and he's literally the only light in a big firmament room. So he's, you know, and there's this phrase, he destroys him with the brightness of his coming. Is it literally the light coming off of him that destroys the Antichrist? I tend to think not because what we see later, right, about how the beast is and the, and the false prophet are actually thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, that's right. And plus yeah. that, would, um, that wouldn't corroborate properly with 2 Baruch, where, uh, chapter 40, where it talks about the Messiah brings, actually, the, it, I think it refers to him as the last leader of that day. Yeah. He brings him up to his holy mountain, Zion, and he convicts him there. It's it's what a cool scene that would be for a movie, man. Brother, he grabs him by the scruff and brings yeah. him up to his father's mountains, convicts him, and just lays him open thigh to neck. Yeah, it's just like this is the guy that tried to get in here thousands of years ago. You finally yeah. got there, but it's not the way you wanted. And, and his purpose was to get up there and make war and take over the throne, right? Yeah. But uh, he's, he's going to be brought before it for judgment. But yeah, real quick, I'll just uh, I'll parallel those verses for the viewer so they can follow along. Um, but that's actually going to be in Revelation 16, where we see the nations assembled for this battle. And it's in verse 13. It says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked, and men he will not see his shame. And they gathered them together in the 
excuse me, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this is the, all the kings that we just read about that are the godless driven from the land. That's why they're in the land is because they've been gathered to the land, right? The, the kings of the earth and their, their armies. So then Revelation 19 is the actual conclusion of this. Like we just, what we're paralleling from Ezekiel, Enoch 38. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which come from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Yeah, that's interesting yeah. imagery. Yeah, so in the future, I, you know, a little pet project that I want to do on the side, Ken, is I, I want to actually compile a book. And each chapter is all this stuff we're reading about, all these descriptions about the return of the Messiah. And it, but it's from a different vantage point, which is what all these scriptures are describing. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like what the vantage point. Well, no, each chapter is a different vantage point. Oh, so there's, there's a chapter of, from the perspective of the people seeing this happen from the ground, uh, there's a perspective of us who are being raised in the resurrection and seeing it happen. Uh, the perspective of the angels that are uh, coming down with Yeshua, <laughs> this is what they in encounter and see. Uh, the perspective of the enemy, you know, so there's multiple vantage points, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think it'd be fascinating to just put them all together, collate them all in, into a big book, you know, just to be like the definitive day of the Lord book, you know. A book that hopefully gets turned into a a cinematic representation of what you're trying to do there. Yeah. That'd be amazing. That'd be so cool. That'd be Sean, I, yeah. <laughs> One thing that I want to know, and you've probably thought about this before too, and probably many of our viewers, um, why is Nimrod Apollyon even released from the abyss? Do you think it's like Yahweh's personal vendetta from what he tried to do earlier on in the storyline where he, you know, he's trying to breach the firmament of heaven. He's pompous. He's he thinks he's a god. He he's you know a Raphaim, like he tampered with his, himself genetically. Do you think that's just Yahweh's way of saying, you know what, I'm gonna let you come back up, and then we're gonna we're gonna deal with you in a way that is so utterly embarrassing and and like what do you think? What what's the purpose really behind letting him come back up from the bottomless pit with all his his you know 200 million demonic entities? Uh, what's the purpose? Like, why not just keep him there? Why does he have to come back up? That's a great question, man. Yeah, why not just uh, make him stay? Or is he actually breaking some sort of rule and, and coming up? That's interesting. But yeah, I've wondered that. It's like, why? What, like, what, what's the purpose behind him coming back up with all these you know demonic entities doing their things on the earth? I don't know. And unless it's simply for what we read in Enoch 54, which is just simply the idea of he wants to actually judge them finally and exterminate them. Because remember in Jubilees 10 and Enoch, what was it, Enoch um, 11 or 12 or, or maybe 10, I'm sorry. But it talks about the, the Nephilim spirits, right? That nine tenths of them went to Sheol yeah. and one tenth of them were left out. And maybe this is just the opportunity for them to 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 literally earn their their extinguishment so he can get them off the earth forever. So like he, they don't have to come up. Yeah. 
I mean, they're doing it on their own volition, right? It seems easier to keep them in Sheol, and then when Sheol gets cast into the lake of fire, just do that. You know what I mean? I've wondered that, but it, I mean, it's a, it's well, a cooler also, part of the story to just let him come back up and bring the kings along and have him rule again and think he's doing his world order like he tried to do initially, but then Yeshua ultimately deals with him in such an embarrassing way, right? Yeah, I know you're focusing mostly on you know Apollyon, which we we thoroughly have exegeted and believe it's is actually Nimrod of old. But um, I'm, I'm what I'm also thinking about is those who are with him, all the unclean spirits and everything involved. Yeah. Remember, those were give over to the to the authority of of Satan. Um, and I think that that is interesting because Satan is locked away, too. So therefore, these guys, their their leaders been locked away. And these it's, it's like appropriate to me. It seems like an appropriate moment uh, to go ahead and extinguish all these who were just. The only reason they were, according to Jubilees anyway, I mean, the only reason they were continuing to be let out anyway was just simply to test mankind whether or not they would follow the law of God. But the difference with the millennial reign is that the Father is, through his Messiah, working out the law of God for the whole world to follow. So it's like, even if there were demonic and unclean spirits trying to tempt and test mankind, um, not only would it create more peace and it wouldn't be the promised fulfillment of a world of peace like like he does in his like he talks about in his prophets, but we would have the authority over them so quick, like they would they would be gone in the first three, four days. You know what I mean? Like every time, yeah. especially if if all of us, the resurrected, um, are walk are able to actually interact with the survivors which as that seems to be the case since we're going to be the royal priesthood. <laughs> um, I mean, basically, we're actually helping them learn how to live righteously in a world of peace where there's no war. And we're told that these, these unclean spirits who work with Apollyon, um, they're part of what create an attack and do oppression and start battles and wars and conflict and strife. And so therefore, if they're completely removed, it gives the opportunity fulfillment, at least, you know, of what was promised to the father, right? Where we got an age of, of rest, a, a Sabbath millennial reign. Yeah. Not just for those inside the city, but even outside the city. Yeah. That's where they live in peace. It's fa yeah, it's fascinating to me because uh, the the Nephilim that died during the days of the flood, those demonic unclean spirits that were wandering that got dealt with, the nine tents that you just mentioned that were put in Sheol, the other one tent that were left to remain on the earth, they didn't they didn't have a body. Or a type of physicality like the other ones that are coming up out of the abyss with, right? Right. Yes. That like, how do they even have the yeah. cup? The, the cup, like, you know what I mean? Maybe this is yeah. just for another show. We're going off on. on a, I'm yeah. going off on a tangent here, but it's uh, okay. But then this is why you know. Um, I mean, this is what happens on live shows. It's fine. Uh, I just think that that could. You know, remember I've theorized in the past, and again, this is theory. We haven't really put a lot of effort into this, but I've theorized in the past that could be why we have that statement, Amos chapter two. I think it's verse seven. Where it says, though you may ascend to heaven from there, I'll pull you down. Though you may dig into Sheol from there, I'll bring you up. Um, and it talks about how the, you know, those who are, I think it's in, um, I'm trying to remember if it's in, uh, if it's in Zephaniah or if it's in um, the book of, I can't remember. It's one of the minor prophets, but it talks about how the, the dead from under the sea are brought before Yeshua. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not the great white throne judgment. It's, it's in, it's in reference and context of the day of the Lord. And this whole concept is that, is it possible the kings of the earth today, which is why they just immediately group up with the Satan, the dragon, and the and the beast when they show up, is it possible because they already know about them and they're literally trying to get to Sheol 
to interact with him. Very possible. I mean, why would he even make that statement? Those who dig into Sheol, uh, from there I'll bring you up. In fact, that statement's repeated in the book of Jubilees. I think it's in chapter 19. Oh, really? Or chapter 23 or 19, one of those two. So, um, yeah, I mean, why? I, I didn't know you could dig into Sheol. We did an entire episode on Sheol. We didn't talk about digging into it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. And where are those uh, angels at that are, that are guarding it, you know? Well, it's, you know, that's the thing is like, I... I just wonder, and this is where people have, you know, the theories of CERN and the, the Hadron Collider, and they think that maybe they're doing something there, trying to actually get into Sheol or somehow. I mean, well, that, most, most of the theories involve just tapping into another dimension of some sort. But if we're taking a firmament model of creation, as the Bible describes, then are they trying to actually dig into Sheol? I mean, th there's a lot of theories to be talked about. I just think that it's fascinating to me that there is, as you said, clearly physical beings that come up out of the pit which we know is Sheol. They're not supposed to until the appointed time. Why was he given the appointed time, like you said? And and the moment they come up, they just seem to collaborate with the kings of the earth um, as far as the bad guys go. You know, they're just all getting together. And okay. because it's what the kings of the earth have always worshipped anyway, the gods of the dead. Yeah. So I don't know, man. There's a lot to it. but There is. Let's let's move along. Sorry about that, guys. I, uh, right. Once Sean and I get talking and we don't have the, the opportunity to edit stuff, we just go. So. <laughs> We'll try to keep it on on task here. Are we on Enoch thirty nine, or did we? Was there another yeah, one that we wanted to? Yeah, thirty nine. Okay. Do you want, uh, let me see. I'll read that one, Sean. You can read that one. Go ahead. Okay. All right, Enoch chapter thirty nine. All right, this is an interesting um, introduction to this chapter. And it shall come to pass in those days that elect and holy children will descend from the high heaven, and their seed will become one with the children of men. And in those days, Enoch received books of zeal and wrath and books of disquiet and expulsion. And mercy shall not be accorded to them, saith the Lord of spirits. And in those days, a whirlwind carried me off from the earth and set me down at the end of the heavens. And there I saw another vision, the dwelling places of the holy and the resting places of the righteous. Here my eyes saw their dwellings with his righteous angels and their resting places with the holy. And they petitioned and interceded and prayed for the children of men and righteousness flowed before them as water and mercy like dew upon the earth. Thus it is amongst them forever and ever. Now, Ken, uh, sorry, going, let's, yeah, uh, you, yeah, just sorry to interrupt you real quick. I was, this six and seven, as you see these two slides I put together, um, six and seven are, are different. Uh, that's where the translators have two different options for us, which I think okay. is fascinating. That's why I made two different slides for both of those verses. I guess there's still a decision to be made as far as what they're really trying to say. Okay. Well, there. yeah, I guess we'll just, we'll address verse one there because for those of you following along, um, you might've caught that that really is a little bit confusing where we go from Enoch chapter 38 verse five, and then into the, um, the first verse of Enoch 39, it kind of seems to be just like this random, out of place um you know thing that enoch's describing here but sean what what did we what did we um come to the conclusion of this you 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 found out that there was actually a um these symbols mean things right these little symbols that yeah. we see in some of these things yeah the brackets and i'm actually screen sharing for people to okay. see along real quick but the brackets that are that are encompassing verses one and two uh that seems to be what's considered an interpolation 
So it's basically something that seems from the translator standpoint, it was inserted into the text without truly knowing if it matched that particular part of the text. So, uh, and the little cross symbols that just seem to wrap around a couple of, of words in Enoch 31, 39 verse one, that actually indicates that there was a corruption in the text. And so either something's missing or they did their best to fill in to make sense of it in English. So ultimately verses one and two as a whole seem to be very much in question from the translators themselves, from what the from whatever manuscripts they were working with. That's right. And then even just the last sentence in verse two, the latter half of verse two, that that makes sense. And mercy shall not be accorded to them, saith the Lord of Spirits, because that, that flows well with Enoch 38, verse five, where it's talking about the kings of the earth and, and the sinners and unrighteous in those days who aren't going to receive any type of mercy. So that's yeah. that flows nicely with with you know the context of the previous chapter. And that isn't actually included in, in any of the, um, you know, the bracketing here. And um, so, yeah, it, it would make sense that, you know, the bracketed areas there likely don't belong in, the, in this part of the, the chapter or even at all. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, so I think that, so basically it looks like chapter 39 as a whole has some issues with it. Yeah. From the translator standpoint. And um, um, hang on, man, one second. I think we have a, looks like we have a little bit of a troll here in the, in the comment section. So let me just handle him real quick. Oh, yeah. um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So while Sean, while Sean's dealing with that, so yeah, if you read it, it reads as though, you know, their seed, and this is talking about, from what I understand here, and when it shall come to pass in those days that the elect and holy children will descend from the high heaven. So I'm thinking this is talking about angels, and this is still in reference and in context of the day of the Lord, and their seed will become one with the children of men. And so the only time we ever really see anything about seed becoming one with the children of men is in Genesis six when the when the watcher angels, the rebellious ones, went on to the, the daughters of women and, and defile themselves by you know mingling with them. Yeah. So that's that's definitely not what's happening on the day of the Lord. No. No, we get no, there's just like persecution and death. There's not the ability to try to cohabitate and and make your own race, uh, which is what the Nephilim came from. So it's definitely right. a completely different context on the day of the Lord. So it makes me wonder, Ken, if if because here's something I also wanted to state about the notes about these translations is that this R.H. Charles translation, which was done apparently in the year 1917, so a long time ago, way before the Sefer was ever published. So this 1917 translation actually has notes as far as the translator trying to help the reader understand some of the decisions he made. And it even says, apparently, um, as it's been updated over time. Because remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found um, in 1947, and so therefore they were able to line up the Book of Enoch in Aramaic with um, the the Giez Bible, which is you know the Ethiopian canon, which already had the Book of Enoch in it. Right. So in the translator's notes, it has there's some symbols that are used, just like these brackets and these little crosses we're seeing, um, but a different symbol is used if it's a portion of text that was found in the Ethiopian canon, but not in the Dead Sea Scrolls or not in this other translation. So therefore those symbols are not used 
in Enoch 39 verses 1 and 2. Instead, it just seems to say, the translator saying, there's some, there's fragmented piece of information that he tried to stick in here to make the best sense of it. But it, with the, even within that, that fragmented piece of information, there was some corruption in the text, which was probably why he was just guessing. Right. Yeah. So that's where, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to fit the flow of what we're reading at all. Yeah. And we're at the mercy of, of translators and, you know, these yeah. theologians that, that take it upon themselves to do this. So, I mean, that's why yeah. we're testing it to the scriptures and, and, you know, weeding out what we need to weed out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of other stuff going on in this chapter, but at the yeah. same time, it's like that particular that particular front can can just confuse people if you don't really take a moment to know what those symbols mean. That's right. So, but yeah, Enoch thirty nine uh, verse six though. Did you want to did you want to address the two different concepts there? Because there's an A and a B, and B has a lot more information than A. So <laughs> I'll uh, I'll screen share it real quick so you guys can follow along and know what I'm talking about. But um, uh, yeah, I didn't read that. So, do you want to read that, Sean? Yeah, one second, man. Let me just see if I can. I mean, there's some interesting stuff even in um, verse yeah. three there, where it talks about um, where he takes him by a whirlwind off to the the ends of the heavens, and he sees a, another vision of dwelling places of the holy and the resting places of the righteous. Yes. Did you want to make mention of that real quick? Yeah, I mean, we can. We can. I mean. What do you think I that's talking about? The I didn't actually prepared on that particular part right okay. there. So um, if, if you did, you're welcome to expound, brother. Yeah. So the dwelling places of the holy and the resting places of the righteous. If this is, I mean, could this still be in the context of the day of the Lord? Um, I'm thinking that it might be, but even if it's not, it just, the way it's described, it sounds like they're the habitations inside the new Jerusalem, right? I mean, Yeshua says, I, I go to make a place for you. We know that we're going to have our own little dwelling places within the greater New Jerusalem. So this might yes. be what he's what he's looking at here. Yes, the only thing that makes me think it's it's um, he saw the dwelling places of the righteous or the dwelling place of the holy, but that it's not happening in the time frame of the day of the Lord, is because of verse three. Because and in those days, a whirlwind carried me off from the earth. Sent me yeah, down. yeah. So he's seeing the habitation. He's seeing the dwelling places, the different you know rooms and houses and stuff. But in verse five, even this is neat too. Where he says, "Here my eyes saw their dwellings with his righteous angels, that's and right. their resting places with the holy." So that's yeah. kind of cool. I mean, um, it is, and it says that the the angels petitioned and interceded and prayed for the children of men. Yeah, which is what we saw them being chastised for. Um, earlier, so you, you think they're still doing that during the millennial reign for the survivors, the the mortals that are on on the earth? I mean, I think we all will be. I think everyone inside the city will be yeah. praying for those outside the city. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where they were chastised. I think what chapter 15 where God told the rebellious angels, yeah, you're not, you're supposed to be praying for mankind. Yeah. That was your role. Not for them to do it for you. They're not supposed to pray for you. (laughs) So, um, yeah, just another debunking of those who claim Enoch, uh, ascribe or teaches angel worship. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, man. Um, I think that's that's fascinating. So it's there's just a lot going on here because he of chapter twenty five, Enoch already saw the throne of the Messiah, the mountains of Zion, the seven different mountains, the the middle one, the seventh mountain being the biggest. Uh, he th- saw the trees of life, the river of life, but he's also now he's seeing the actual dwelling places of what will be the righteous resurrected, which is yeah, fast. That's exciting, man. Yeah, that's so exciting. I can't wait to have a place where I don't have to rent and pay someone else's mortgage. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm pretty sure you get to live by your, uh, for free uh, with everybody else in the, in the new kingdom, right? That's right. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. The king in, kingdom economics is going to be great. Yeah, I don't it's think he's going to get there, and he's going to be like, "Oh, by the way, rent six fifty. You want to get you want to get a, a closer place to me in my mountain? You're going to be paying big time, big bucks. It's prime real estate over here on Zion. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to pick up reading the rest of the chapter? Yeah, starting with six there. Yeah. Sure, I'll screen share again. All right, and in that place, my eyes saw the elect one of righteousness and of faith. And verse 7a says, And I saw his dwelling place under the wings of the Lord of spirits. 6b says, And righteousness shall prevail in his days, and the righteous and elect shall be without number before him forever and ever. And 7b says, And all the righteous and elect before him shall be strong. So we got these you know, cross things here, which was a corruption, right? Yeah, there was a corruption in the text. So he's guessing, the translator's guessing what this word could be. Him shall be strong as fiery lights, and their mouth shall be full of blessing, and their lips extol the name of the Lord of spirits, and righteousness before him shall never fail, and uprightness shall never fail before him. Yeah, and that, that bracketed part, part at the last of 7b is apparently inserted as what's called an interpolation. Yeah. Um, but to me, you know, what this, I don't know, to be honest, uh, 6a and 7a, um, I, 7a says, I saw his dwelling place under the wings of the Lord of Spirits. Um, yeah. It's so different from 7, 6b and 7b. So I'm not sure what the translator is getting at with that part there. But what, what I think is fascinating in 7b, uh, or excuse me, 6b says, the righteous shall prevail in his days, and the righteous and elect shall be without number before him forever and ever. We see that already in Revelations, don't we? We do, and we see it actually in uh, Second Ezra's as well. Yeah, and then in seven B, it talks about how uh, their mouths should be full of blessing, their lips extol the name of the Lord of Spirits. This reminds me of Revelation fourteen, with the hundred and forty-four thousand saying that there would be no lying on their lips. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, the seven um, A Sean reminded me of um, Psalm, I think it's 91, where it says in 7a, and I saw his dwelling place under the wings of the Lord of Spirits. And um, Psalm 91, 4 says, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and a buckler. So I find that kind of interesting if that's, you know, if we're going to go with that text in Enoch 39, 7a. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think these wings are? Are these literal wings? Are these the cherubim wings, you think, or what? Or, or yeah. does our Heavenly Father have massive, massive <laughs> wings that are just going to cover us in some way? I personally don't think it's literal. I think this is a, a phrase that we see often used for the protection of his house. So, okay. yeah, just the, 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 just the reach, basically. Um, okay. But that's me personally. If you have a different thought, oh. I'm open to hearing it. Well, I'm wondering, like... <laughs> There's how many cherubim are there? Is there only two? What do you mean? Well, the ones that are that are you know covering his throne, right? They have these massive wings. I'm just wondering how big these these angels are, and could uh, they could could the wings of the cherubim, yeah, could somehow could provide some sort of a canopy? Well, I mean, you mean like physically a canopy over just the the shade over the actual throne itself? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I do those angels sweat and it like drops down on top of the head of the Messiah sitting on the throne. <laughs> Probably not, but 
I'm just wondering, like, how big, I mean, you're right, that would have to be big, but I don't know how that applies to us unless it's referring to what what aspect of his throne would that be referring to if it's somehow literal wings of angels hanging over the top of his throne? Just his authority, you think? The protection of his authority? I just think what it's saying, like I saw his dwelling place under the wings of Yahweh of spirits. I mean, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just kind of belaboring this point, but I'm thinking that maybe the cherubim angels have something to do with it with their wings in a way. Okay. So like the actual, when, when Jesus in Revelation 2 talks about how he sits on his father's throne, you thinking that this is the place that it's talking about? Like there's actual shade on, on the portion of the throne he sits? Could be. Interesting. Because, because, I mean, I mean like when we see, yeah, when we see these, you know, visions, especially with Ezekiel and, and other passages where he's he's seeing these angels, right? In my mind, I'm thinking these are just like like probably big dudes, but like not too big. But man, we don't know. They could be absolutely massive. Well, guardians, right? I mean, apparently they can assume many different forms, as Revelation 20 talks or Enoch 20 talked about. So the cherubim can angels in general. Okay, well, I was thinking like the cherubim, the seraphim seem to be completely different classes, and we're actually going to talk about the seraph or the the living creatures in Isaiah six three and Revelation four eight in a bit at the end of Enoch you know, chapter thirty nine here. But yeah, I don't I don't know if those ones can assume any different forms. I mean, they're already described as being in four different forms That's already. Right. Some of them, right? So yeah, they got the maybe four they do have that quality, but I just see them as being completely unique and. And the ones that are guarding Yahweh or, or with with the wings or whatever are, are just doing that and not alone. What is it? What I mean, assuming many different forms, what are we talking about? Like the the T one thousand from Terminator, the liquid metal Terminator? <laughs> is that what we're talking about? Like you can just make become whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean uh, But you still have to be abide in righteousness. You just can't use whatever new form to do unrighteousness. Yeah. Well, I mean it's Azazel or Satan, he he assumes many forms too, right? In the book of Joshua, he turns into a, a he, and water, right? He tries to drown Abraham if if the book of Joshua is true. Yeah. Um, turns into an old man. He can turn like he can turn into different things, and so whatever class angel he is, I guess they can change into different mat. You know, yeah, I don't know. yeah. I'm I'm not sure. It's pretty wild. <laughs> anyway, sorry, man. We can keep going. Uh, which which verse did you stop on? Uh, seven. I just talked about seven A there, but we read both seven A and seven B. Yep. Do you want to pick up eight again? Sure. Screen share here. Okay. Verse eight says, "There I wished to dwell, and my spirit longed for that dwelling place. And there heretofore hath been my portion, for so has it been established concerning me before the Lord of Spirits." In those days, I praised and extolled the name of the Lord of Spirits with blessings and praises because he hath destined me for blessing and glory according to the good pleasure of the Lord of Spirits. For a long time, my eyes regarded that place, and I blessed him and praised him, saying, Blessed is he, and may he be blessed from the beginning and forevermore. And before him there is no ceasing. He knows before the world was created what is forever and what will be from generation unto generation. Those who sleep not bless thee. They stand before thy glory and bless, praise, and extol, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of spirits. He filleth the earth with spirits. And here my eyes saw all those who sleep not. They stand before him and bless and say, Blessed be thou, and blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever. And my face was changed, for I could no longer behold. 
Yeah, so there we go, guys. That's um, that's interesting. The, what we just read there, Sean. Um, my opinion kind of corroborates with the um, the angel types in Isaiah and Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, do you want to read? Actually, there's some places in Revelation that fit really well with what we just read. Yeah. Sure. So uh, real quick, I'll just uh, I'll pull those up for the people to look at. Um, this is actually going to start here in. Revelation chapter 5 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders. The number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all things in them. And I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, to me, what was fascinating about this was when we read back up here in Enoch 39, where it talked about um, um, the, how it chastised the angels that they should be praying for men. This just shows that um, in Revelation 5, it shows that the angels themselves are subject to the Messiah, to the Son of Man. So this isn't just, just he's not just ruler over mankind. He's ruler over all things in heaven and all things on earth and everything yeah. On the earth and under the earth and in the sea, you know what I'm saying? All things. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Right. So this is the Father gave his glory and authority to the Messiah to to reign on his throne in all things. So it's like, um, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, there's no distinguishment whatsoever. Um, but then also just this concept here, like we read in Enoch 39, let me see what verse it was. Um I think it was in uh I was just talking about those who sleep not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one that you already had prepared and I prepared as well. Isaiah 6, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so we see these same guys around the throne um, uh, saying the same thing in Revelation 4, um, if I'm not mistaken. Or was it Revelation 7? One second here. Um, I think yeah, it was, it's right, Revelation 7, yeah. Was it Revelation 7? Yeah, verse 11, I think it was, 11 and 12. Yeah, that's right. And after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands. They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power might be to God, to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's just crazy, man. There's so much. There's so much. Well, um, these John, these four living creatures are they fascinate me. Um they're not talked about very much in, in our canon of 66 here, but the apocalypse of Abraham actually mentions mentions them. And I don't know if you remember the little interaction between, I think it was two of them. I think there's four of them that sit on the four corners of Yahweh's throne, essentially, right? They're like guardians. And um, they get mad at each other, man. According to apocalypse yeah, of Abraham there's an angel a watcher angel i don't know which one it was exactly what is it? i think it was like jael or something his name was he has to like make sure they don't tear each other apart because yeah. they have such zeal and jealousy for guarding the creator 
there's only four of them and so he has to like kind of get in there and like you know break up the feud before they really tear things up and it's, it's i find that super fascinating because you know we don't really get too much information about these particular angels but so if we're taking everything that we read in enoch and in genesis literally as far as the context of the story this idea that there's a firmament model created not not a ball in space but there was an actual structure called a firmament with multiple levels and that we're on the bottom level so to speak where the waters receded and it created a canopy over us, over us of open air where the birds fly. We have land and seas we live on, but above the actual structure above us, above this, the ferment that was created on day two for us, there's other levels that there's water in some of them, but then there's also more land where the Father exists. And this was the purpose in Genesis 11 of the tower trying to get to heaven, as Isaiah 14 tells us, the motivation to ascend above the stars, to get to the throne, because the stars are actually between us and the throne of God, as far as this model goes. The fifth firmament, apparently, Sean. So yeah. Nimrod and his cohorts would have had to go even higher. Exactly. So that was <laughs> Reaching our... And apparently the father thought it was possible to the degree where he actually wanted to stop him. Um, but they're trying to get through these multiple layers of firmament within this biblical creation model to get to the throne that we're reading about with these little feisty angels guarding this throne. So that means just on the per chance that he got through all these other warrior angels, he has to deal with these things <laughs> that are so feisty that, uh, you know, that are guarding the throne even before he can get to the Lord of, of all creation who could just snap his literally pull a Thanos on him, right? He could literally just snap his fingers and extinguish the dude trying to run at him with, with the bow and arrow or something like it's just it, it's mind-blowing the audacity of nimrod to think i'm actually going to go up there and overcome the, the creator and sit on his throne it's sad man because you know if if jasher is somewhat of an illegitimate account when we look at nimrod's life earlier before he decided to take on this massive ego right he was someone that he he loved yahweh and yahweh actually respected him and, and helped him become a warrior yeah and then and he let that get to him right so it's it's truly sad to see that if that's true <laughs> that nimrod started off to be a pretty good guy well i mean it's, it makes you wonder if what happened in jubilees chapter 8 had anything to do with it because because uh, apparently you know as he ran as he began to reign at, apparently 20 years old and if, if jasher's true that the story goes 20 years old nimrod be, started taking on taking out other kingdoms and be, started taking out other giants basically and uh and then he he grew and you know became a gibberim as genesis 10 8 talks about right he became mighty and um in power and and supposedly in stature and there's a lot of theories about exactly how that works out but he's the cousin of the dude that found the teachings of the watchers in jubilees chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. so it makes me wonder if the cousins got together and started talking you know yeah. what i mean <laughs> you're like hey i found all these teachings about all this amazing stuff that we can try you know that Noah didn't tell us about and Shem didn't tell us about and our dads didn't tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, man. So it just makes me, it just makes me think he was corrupted by power, you know? Yeah. As that, that's what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. But um, let me see what else do we have. Was that the end of 39? That was it. I think, okay. we're, and then we're I think the last part was just said that his face changed. So for, I can no longer behold, you think that that was just talking about how like, um, he was no longer uh, able to see all this stuff in the brightness of heaven because uh, he was basically the vision was ending. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure what that really means. His face changing. Yeah. Freaking no longer behold. Yeah. Yeah. That's plausible. I'm not, 
I'm not sure, man. Yeah, it's interesting wording sometimes, but well, like he's in the spirit right now, right? Which is really a weird concept to begin with, yeah. but well, that's that's kind of what I'm I'm wondering is, you know, as we were dissecting, you know, like a few a few days ago, we we're on the road to rescue on the other channel on Parable of the Vineyard, and we were dissecting the idea of the difference between, you know, at the first resurrection, we're given the spiritual body, which is not one of made of dirt; it's one made of water and spirit. So it makes me wonder when you're quote unquote in the spirit, you know, the, the animating force of the spirit of God within you that gives you life and breath in your earthy body. Is that somehow what he's able to, is that the conduit? Is that the Wi-Fi basically that he's able to see all this stuff through? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, that's kind of how I see it, man. Um, Cause we're, you know, we have the spirit of God in us. Everyone does. Right. And that's Everyone. a separate entity than the Holy spirit. So yeah, he uses that somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It's yeah. a transfer of knowledge and apparently actual visions, which <laughs> which is which pretty amazing. It basically means he can talk to anybody. That's right. And only spirit beings could see that, right? Because if Enoch was taken up in his flesh, there's no possible way he would be able to. Yeah. Yeah. The, the flesh can't exist up there. I mean, it, yeah. it would just be destroyed. So, yeah, uh, it's fascinating, man. Fascinating. So, Enoch 30, 30, uh, 37 through 39 is what we covered tonight. Chapter 40, we'll actually dig into next time. Um, and it just, it's, it continues to be wild. Uh, I think what, what Ken and I talked about recently for, for all the viewers who are watching along, um, we're going to get to a certain place here in the next few episodes, probably um, if not chapter 60, maybe, maybe right before it, but we're going to get to a place around the, the 60th chapter of Enoch, where we're actually going to take a break from the book of Enoch because we have a lot of other books that we want to get to. So what we're going to do is we're going to start rotating these now that people are getting more familiar with what we're doing with these, these apocryphal books and how we're dissecting them. Um, our goal is for people to understand this idea. And then as, as you probably already know, if, you know, if you're not already a subscriber to kingdom of context, make sure you do that. Ken also has a channel. It's called hanging on his words, go and subscribe to his channel. Uh, he's got a great video. He just put out recently. But um, and of course, like, share and comment that helps get the, the uh, video and the algorithms for other people to see it. But the idea here is that we want to actually tackle some other books as well, um, because there's so many books, as you've already seen in these episodes, we're already bouncing parallel ideas off these other apocryphal books that have been taken out of the Bible. So that means there's a lot of other high quality books that are that should possibly be in the Bible. But somewhere, somewhere, someone along the line had made this decision on their own to take them out. So we're actually anxious to get to testing some of those other books. And uh, we're probably going to do that here in the next two or three weeks. So stick with us, guys, because what I would like for everyone watching to do is to put in the comments which book you would like to tackle next. OK, so which apocryphal book would you like to see us break down next? And we'll kind of take a poll and we'll see what most people are interested in um, and just see where, you know, what most people are familiar with in general, because some people have not even a clue that bell and the dragon was a book that was in the Bible, but taken out. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a nice brief book that we could probably cover in maybe one whole episode. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. No guys, that's a, that's a great idea, Sean. And uh, hopefully you guys ratified through the conversations we've had tonight. And um, we appreciate you joining us. Those who have, and uh, Enoch's a great book. I love Enoch, Sean. I really, I really do. And the more we, we dig into these chapters, the more I, I think this guy was an amazing, amazing prophet of God. And, um, his assertions that he makes about him being revealed all things like no other men really were 
is <laughs> truly coming to pass, in my opinion. Like, especially when you yeah. when, when you do what we're doing and lining it up with the scriptures, right? The rest of the canon. So, hello, yeah, guys. Yeah. This seems to be corroborating. Yeah, Enoch. Uh, I mean, talk about setting the standard for prophets, right? So this is the kind of thing that, to me, it's like people. You're reading Moses, uh, and you know, Jubilees tells us that Moses had access to you know these books that were carried over from Abraham, from Noah, from the flood. So it makes me wonder how much of Enoch they knew. And I mean, just because the only dated um, reference to Enoch was was considered 200 BC, meaning that um, that was the first time in the intertestamentary period, you know. But after the Second Temple was built. And he had all the scribes that were writing all these books down and try to categorize them. I'm sure it's because they they got thoroughly frightened after being invaded and exiled, and their first temple being destroyed. That then when they come back the second time, they're like, "Man, we probably should create some backups." You know what I'm saying? And so they started repinning some of these books, and some of them could have been destroyed, fragmented, lost uh, altogether. But just because the first complete copy of Enoch was 200 BC doesn't mean that was the people who wrote it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's like the most illogical thing that we get from academia is this, this authoritative assertion to claim that, well, you know, we the first uh, copy of Enoch is 200 BC from the intertestamental period. So therefore, uh, I was a part of a, uh, uh, you know, a temple a temple project by, you know, by the scholars and scribes of the day from the Pharisees. And I'm like, no, dude, I, that just because they copied a book that people already knew about doesn't mean that they were, that was the first time it was ever written. Yeah. Because if that's the case, then the entire claim of the book of Enoch was invalid to begin with because the whole yeah, point right. of him being a prophet was to claim, Hey, I'm getting the word from God. I'm going to write it down for you. This is what it is. So that means someone in 200 BC was lying about being a guy named Enoch and writing all this stuff down. Yeah. And that means our Messiah who quoted from Enoch and taught from Enoch was teaching from a guy who was not an approved prophet of Yahweh. Yeah. So we've got huge logical problems with claiming that the first appearance of this book was 200 BC. Exactly. Exactly. I, I agree, man, with that, with that diatribe for sure. And, uh, you know, Yeshua's in the flesh brother, Jude, like he's quoting verbatim. I mean, we yeah. got Peter like quoting and reference like guys no no this is a legitimate book <laughs> this is this is a good book yeah and all the content is matching up with everything we're seeing in the other books in the canon so um the same level of scrutiny that people take with this book would have to be taken with other books in the canon yeah. and that's and that's that's unfortunately the bias we see is people do not do that because somewhere along the line someone has convinced us that the 66 books we have today is the pure and unrefined word of god it can't be touched or unblemished. And I'm like, I don't know. Actually, just recently, like just as little less than 200 years ago, a guy made huge edits to the book. So yeah, it got touched. <laughs> well, it got touched and it got refined. So I'm, I'm not sure that your your logic is actually declared by the father. Um, in fact, um, it seems that the father, if ever there is a lack of his of his truth to be able to disseminate to mankind, that's when he raises up a prophet and starts giving his word again. And guess what? The word he gives is always the same message throughout all of history. It's about the coming of the kingdom of God. Yeah. So, amen. you know, I just, I, I'm sorry to go on a rant, but it's, it just blows my mind the level of indoctrination that we see from good men with good hearts who study the scriptures and they can't think outside the box for two seconds to realize, wait a minute, what this professor told me <laughs> might need to be tested. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like his, his, his declaration of what he claims the book of Enoch is may not be the end all be all, especially when all the words line up. And there's just so 
you know, just, it just, I'm welcome to honor of Kings guys, where we test the apocryphal books. Truth, brother, truth. Yeah, we're holding good. people's feet to the fire on what their claims are. And we're digging into these words and we're mat matching up with scripture or we're not. If they're not, we're going to be honest about it. We're going to show you on screen. That's the whole point of the show is that if they don't match up, you'll see it with us. So it's not like we're hiding books that we haven't pulled out, you know. But, um, but yeah, stick with us. Uh, we'll come back next week, uh, Saturday night, and we hope to uh, have another riveting episode. And hopefully I'll do a lot less uh, ranting. No, that's good, man. Love you guys. Thanks for joining us and uh, be kind to each other. Love one another. Um, all those things that we're supposed to do and emulate through through Yeshua, our Messiah and coming King, right? Yeah. So shalom, guys. Yeah. Obey the commandments of God. Listen to his voice. Walk in his love. And uh, all those three things go together. And we just ask that uh, you, you join us next week. Thanks for being here with us uh, for a live episode of episode 12 here on Honor of Kings. We've been exploring the book of Enoch. And we will see you guys next week. See you later, Ken. See you, buddy. See you, man.